This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that over 70% of those 65 and older have hypertension, and there's good evidence to show that less than half of these elderly individuals are adequately controlled. While there are many similarities between hypertension in the elderly and the general population, there are also some important differences. The elderly are more likely to have systolic hypertension, more likely to take multiple medications, increasing their risk of a drug-drug interaction, and they're more likely to experience more frequent and serious adverse drug reactions. So we're gonna learn more about hypertension in the elderly from Dr. Sandra Taylor, a nephrologist and hypertension specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Sandra, welcome. Thank you, good to be here. Well, let's start by having you describe what happens over our lifespan to both systolic and diastolic blood pressure? Yeah, that's very important because it's really the systolic blood pressure elevation that we're talking about in the elderly. So we know that systolic blood pressure increases progressively with age, at least into a person's 70s. And as you said, even if somebody has normal blood pressure through their early adult, middle adult years, the likelihood that they'll have hypertension is about 70 to 75% by age 65. So it's kind of an assumption in our uh, high sodium intake world that this is going to happen. Diastolic blood pressure goes up in early adulthood and it plateaus around 50, you could say, and then it starts to go down. And you might say, well, that's good that diastolic is lower, but it's actually lower because of a loss of elasticity in the arteries. So the arteries are kind of stiff pipes. So the pressure goes in and then it rapidly falls during diastole. And that's the situation we see with hypertension in the elderly. And the sodium intake does become really important because as patients age, they tend to lose their ability to taste various things, including salty things, and they tend to add more salt to their food and eat more foods that are high in salt content. Yeah, it's interesting that you looked at it from that perspective. I've looked at it from the sort of industrial perspective that we're so used to convenience foods. And as people age, one of their social experiences is to eat out in restaurants and try new foods, you know, that are pre-made. And so I think a lot of the salt is already added to the food before they even get it home. I've looked at that and many people will say, well, I never add salt to anything but then they just don't think about the salt that's already added. Sure, and for those who've lost their spouse or partner, cooking for one is often a lot of convenience foods, frozen foods, canned foods, and so forth, which make a fair amount of sodium. Well, what's the definition of hypertension and does it change in relation to the elderly? So the definition is the same. And the current definition is a systolic blood pressure of 130 or higher a diastolic blood pressure of 80 or higher, or both. So one or the other or both. And it is true at all ages. 
and I think the difference there, there is of course a difference and we have to keep some factors in mind for people that are older, but it has to do more with the functioning level of the patient rather than their age. And how about the treatment goals? Any difference there? The treatment goal by the U.S. guideline is the same. Some of the international guidelines have different treatment targets based on age, but interestingly, they're pretty similar in that the more functional, the more active mentally and physically a person is, the more that all of these guidelines will recommend getting the blood pressure down to the same goal as a younger person. And in the current guideline, the ACCAHA guideline, there is a caveat that you know, if somebody is older, and especially if they have a limited expected lifespan, multiple problems, institutionalized, that you really have to set individual goals. And so you would not try to get that person down to the same less than 130 over 80 target as you would an independently living 75 or 80 year old who's still very active and very engaged. Okay. Well, we, I know there's good evidence that shows treating hypertension and managing hypertension in younger individuals, middle-aged individuals is beneficial and improves her outcome. Do we have that same evidence for the elderly? We do. And actually we have better evidence for the elderly for sure than the young. In the middle age, you know, we have evidence when people are at higher risk, but less so in people at low risk. But for the elderly, there's very good evidence that treating and controlling hypertension prevents strokes, heart failure, in particular heart failure hospitalizations, and even death. And now that uh, the SPRINT trial is about uh, six, seven years out from when it ended, there have been additional publications and a specific analysis that just came out in the last year, looking at people who were 80 or older when they went into the SPRINT trial. And there, particularly, there were definite benefits, but they correlated it with mental functioning. The Montreal Cognitive Aging Score, uh, I believe, Montreal Cognitive Assessment, and they found that the people who were high functioning were the ones that had the benefit. And those who scored low on that assessment did not do well. So I think, again, we have to look at the functioning level of the patient and probably at their tolerance for medication. Can you talk a little bit about systolic hypertension and why this is so much more common in the elderly patient than in the middle-aged individuals? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to do with the stiff vessels, really, but it's all systolic. And it's very unusual to see somebody with isolated diastolic hypertension who's older. And then I might think about a secondary workup instant, uh, interestingly. It is all systolic, but systolic blood pressure correlates also with risk and with target organ events. And actually the goals in most guidelines for older people are just systolic. There's no diastolic goal. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get real practical now. So how many blood pressures do we need in a patient to establish a diagnosis of hypertension? Well, hypertension is based on at least two carefully measured readings on at least two visits. So that's, uh, again, regardless of age, but true for elderly as well. 
it's very helpful to also get out of office measurements. Ideally, an ambulatory blood pressure monitor. That way, you could pick up higher blood pressures out of the office than the ones in the office, or what we call masked hypertension. But if that's not an option, uh, home blood pressure measurements with an accurate device are also part of the equation. So we can accept some of these outside blood pressures, uh, those taken in grocery stores, pharmacies, and in their home as part of our equation in determining their diagnosis? I think we can factor them in. I'm not sure that I would use them to eliminate what we're getting in the office. So, you know, there are many ways to measure blood pressure and there are many devices. There's now a United States listing site that lists home units that have been appropriately validated. And I'm part of that review group. I don't get any income. This is all volunteer and it's sponsored through the American Medical Association, but it is available to help encourage people to have, use accurate devices. And that also includes some of the kiosk devices that are available in drugstores. On the other hand, there are also a lot of important technical factors. And so it's really important to make sure that a person is correctly measuring their blood pressure. They need to sit for at least five minutes. Proper positioning is very important. Uh, not do a supine reading. And then one of the things to discourage is people that take 20 readings and give you the best reading that they got. So I think you have to take those home readings with a grain of salt and really look at how they're done. Are they done correctly? Is the machine accurate? Since my practice is mostly elderly, I have found that the vast majority can be taught how to monitor their blood pressure and it's well worth spending the time to show them or teach them how to check their blood pressure correctly using the correct technique. And I find that this really improves their medication adherence. And when it gets them involved in managing their own uh, medical problems, such as hypertension, and then it's also important for them to send me the data. So it, it, it continues to engage them in the management of this condition. Right. I agree. And I, I know that some providers get discouraged by too many readings and will tell somebody not to check their blood pressure. And I don't agree with that. I think you can channel somebody in what the appropriate number, what the appropriate schedule is. Generally, I would say a couple of readings early in the day and a couple of readings later in the day, sitting for five minutes before and not exercising for a couple of hours before, which may falsely lower the pressure. And the provider doesn't have to be the one to train them. You know, you could have somebody in your office train them and also make sure that they're using their machine properly. So I think that elderly patients can absolutely be trained to measure their blood pressure. The data on whether it improves control is harder to get. There is some suggestive data, but I agree with you. I think it does keep people not only engaged, but feeling more in control. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be a few patients and, and you can usually predict who these will be, who send you like 25 readings a day. And you have to kind of, you know, tone them down a little bit and uh, maybe limit the number they take per week. because uh, yeah. too many is not useful either. Yeah. But that's the exception. Yes, it is. Yeah. Let's talk about treatment. Are there pharmacologic options that are better suited for the elderly? And on the other hand, are there some that we should really avoid 
Uh, now that essentially all of the antihypertensives we have are generic, you know, we used to base a lot of the treatment on cost, but now they're all pretty inexpensive. So are there some that are better or worse than others? I don't think there are specifically better or worse. I think that elderly patients, you would start with one of the three classes of medication that we would use in a middle-aged person as well, ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker, or a calcium channel blocker, or a diuretic as first-line therapy. There are some precautions, you know, for thiazide diuretics. They can be extremely effective and well-tolerated, but you have to check electrolytes a couple of weeks after starting or increasing the dose, not only to look for hypokalemia, but to look for hyponatremia. So hyponatremia is more common in elderly patients, especially women, maybe related to excess free water intake or just not being able to properly regulate their sodium concentration. There are also medications that elderly patients may be taking that could raise their blood pressure. Non-steroidals are very important. And, you know, there are competing morbidities of uh, arthritis and pain that people are trying to live with. I try pointedly to ask specifically by name about the various NSAIDs, especially over-the-counter, but also prescription NSAIDs. Usually now that there are topical NSAIDs, we've thought those are less absorbed and they're probably okay, the mm -hmm. topicals. But um, I think that's one. Another would be um, decongestants. It's important to ask about that. Anything with the D that you have to show your license at the pharmacy to buy, those would be red flags. And there are even patients on stimulants, elderly patients, and that would be another potential contributor. You mentioned the electrolyte abnormalities with thiazides, and I have found that if I limit the patient's dose to like 12.5 or 25 milligrams per day, I see much less of that than if I push it all the way to 50 milligrams. And I'm not sure I get that much more blood pressure control by going with that higher dose. I just would put out a caution with the hyponatremia that I've also seen it with very small doses. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not sure that one is dose related. I agree with you though, that you don't necessarily want to push a drug to its max. You are likely to get more benefit and fewer side effects by going maybe to mid-level and adding a second agent. I noticed you didn't mention anything about beta blockers. Have they kind of fallen out of favor somewhat? For hypertension, they have. Now, if there's a reason to use a beta blocker for coronary artery disease, heart failure, arrhythmias, absolutely. And it may have some blood pressure lowering effect, but the data for using uh, beta blockers as one of your first or second agents is really not there. And so they're usually considered a fourth or fifth drug in terms of the treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing you just mentioned, I want to go back to this. You know, we try to minimize the number of medications our patients take because they're also taking a lot of other things for other problems. But do you think it's better to push a antihypertensive to its maximum dose and use maybe one or use more moderate doses of more than one medication? What's better for their management of hypertension? That too is a whole discussion. And the ideal would be even a combination agent that has two drugs in it. 
So a couple of cautions. The combination agents, I think, are, are really where things are going. But I hesitate, especially in an elderly person, to start them on two drugs at once. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're going to listen to me and restrict their salt better. And then that combined with a combination drug may be too strong. If you have somebody that you need to add a second agent, you might consider a combination agent instead of their first therapy that would combine both. For instance, a ACE inhibitor or antitense receptor blocker in a diuretic, but there's also combinations of those agents with amlodipine. And so if you could find a combination, that would be another way to keep things simple. As I said, I think that pushing the dose to the max it depends what you call the max and you may get less benefit as you go up in the dose. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can we go too low? Can we drop the blood pressure too low in elderly patients, maybe causing them increased problems? Absolutely. We want to be careful about orthostatic hypotension, for instance, as a big factor. Interestingly, the likelihood of orthostatic hypotension decreases as the blood pressure is brought down. So it's kind of like the higher they start, the more they fall, the, those blood pressure readings. And so uh, if you're afraid to use drugs because they'll drop too much because they drop when they're very hypertensive, that actually may improve. But it is important to check orthostatics and also to ask about symptoms of lightheadedness because you don't want that. And I, I've had patients tell me that some, they feel like they don't function as well at a lower blood pressure. Some of that may take time. So if you treat somebody and you bring them down gradually, then they may tolerate a lower reading rather than doing it too quickly. Mm -hmm. And I've found that patients who have a significant degree of orthostatism, uh, especially if they get up in the middle of the night to uh, urinate, for example, I've had a few who've actually passed out you know, a little bit of a post-mictrish and syncope on top of their antihypertensive and standing up. So it can be of a major concern. And I agree, you really need to check an orthostatic blood pressure in an elderly patient. Yeah, I mean, there's also a separate condition of autonomic failure, basically, with orthostatic hypotension. And in that kind of situation, which is sort of the far end of the spectrum, I treat them for their standing blood pressures. Yeah. So I think that uh, you do need to consider if there's a significant decline, you don't want somebody bottoming out day or night. And so it's important to treat so that they have a blood pressure of 110 at least or higher standing up. You, you really don't want it low. Yeah, I can specifically remember a patient who had multiple system atrophy and the autonomic dysfunction associated with that when he stood up his blood pressure was like 70 over 30, but sitting down or lying down, it was significantly elevated, you know, diastolics in the hundreds and systolics in the 180s. So it's really hard to know how to manage a patient like that. It can be quite challenging. Right. I mean, there we do things like alter the, elevate the head of the bed, things to try to help those supine high readings too. Yep. And compression, leotards, things like that. Yeah. Well, you've given us a lot of information. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points uh, regarding hypertension in the elderly? 
I think the first thing I would say is elderly is kind of a relative term, and it doesn't encompass uh, just a homogeneous group of people. And so if somebody is very functional and really active and participating in their life, I would be more aggressive. I wouldn't go fast. I wouldn't hit them too hard, but I would work to bring the blood pressure down and try to get it to under 130 systolic and under 80 diastolic to prevent morbidity, to prevent strokes, to keep them alive, to keep them from having heart failure, which is a, a major issue in the elderly. But if somebody is going to an institution or really not functioning very well, on a lot of medication, then I would not set the target that low and just kind of try to keep them out of trouble and temper that enthusiasm to over treat. I also think that lifestyle factors are very important in the elderly and it is important to talk about diet, to talk about weight management, exercise, all of which can help in some ways to lower blood pressure and, and then also look at over-the-counter medication because you may get quite a bit of benefit from making those kinds of changes if people are willing. Well, we've been discussing hypertension in the elderly with Dr. Sandra Taylor, a nephrologist and hypertension specialist. Sandra, it's always nice to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me back. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.